All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse, verses 1 through 6 we're going to look at this morning. And if you notice the theme in our singing was that uh, Christ is greater than Moses, and really this section of Scripture had to do with, has to do with Christ is superior to Moses. It is actually a preamble to the second warning that we're going to look at in Hebrews next week. I just got... I want to look at the practical application of it first by asking you a few questions. Will there ever be a time when, you'll, when you will not want to stand firm in the face of your own trials? Will Satan come against you with a strong temptation, and that temptation being to be disloyal to Christ? Will his demons ever try to topple your faith? Even to get you to consider giving up your Christian profession. To tempt you just to shut up. And say this Christian thing is a nice thing, but don't get too involved with it. Or that your sin, by its glamour, would lure you away from Christ? The answer to all those questions is yes. When, where, how, to what extent it will happen, no one knows. It is not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. So most importantly, this morning, it's a matter of being prepared of holding fast to your confession right until the end, till Christ comes or you die, never, ever giving up your confession of Christ. And that's not just theoretical, that's practical confession. The need to entrust and obey God's message rather than disobey and turn away from Him is paramount. It's the paramount consideration in light of the wilderness community in the Old Testament, which we'll look at next week, that really their demise was to rebel rather than to obey God's word. Their demise was to just not listen to Moses, God's mediator. So the appeal to believers is not to rebel like the wilderness community. Don't do what they did back in the Old Testament. These verses are, as I said, a preamble to the second warning passage in Hebrews. The passage before us is intended to counter the propensity for deliberate unbelief and rebellion and thereby preventing the repeated events from past Jewish history. Therefore, You and I need to be ready. Whatever the temptation, whenever it may come, and we should practice holding to our confession, which means we need to know what we believe. And really, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Especially what we believe about Jesus Christ. We are called to be faithful in our calling, and we are called to be faithful in our confession. So if, if you are to continue to be faithful in the Christian life, then you must focus on and hold on to Christ, our great superior Lord, So there's several things we need to consider very seriously. And the first thing is this. To consider Jesus' portrayal of a faithful son. What what does that mean, to be faithful? Well, look at what it says in our Bible in Hebrews chapter 3, in verse number 1. The first part of verse 1, it says, well, let me just indicate to you what the the writer of Hebrews, who's, who's 
who he is addressing at this point. It says, therefore, verse 1, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Now, he's addressing in that phrase, brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those who are called to heaven. He's talking to believers. But he's remember, he's talking to believers that are confronted with trials, severe trials. They're confronted with being thrown out of their community. They're confronted with leaving a very influential religious system, Judaism. These are basically Jewish believers who are kind of riding the fence in some way when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's the audience. So he's talking to believers Now, what is he asking them to do in verse number one? He's asking them simply to do this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, he's asking them to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Now, that seems to you and I maybe just a given. But it really isn't. The term consider is a command which carries the meaning of one who seriously contemplates the object in which he or she is focused. Other translations say it like this, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And another, think carefully about this Jesus. That this Jesus is the subject and the object of our faith. It was already said in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, in these last days, he has spoken to us in whom? In his son. So think carefully on the incarnate son and what his being sent, being the sent one and the intercessor means. Keep on applying your mind to it unceasingly. And apply it to your life when you begin to meditate upon it. One commentator gives us some help in regard and answers the question, or tries to answer the question, how does one focus one's mind? If we're going to focus our mind on Jesus, which which the assumption is we don't. Not as we ought to. And not continually in our Christian life. Many times, we, it's just our initial profession, the early parts of our Christian life. We're excited about it. There's zeal there. There's a lot of stuff going on. And then all of a sudden, 10 years comes down the pike, and we're not focusing so much our thoughts and mind on Jesus. We should be if we've been growing in the Word of God. But how can we? He, some suggestions are fixing your mind begins with desire. Desiring Christ is, is part of a significant indication of Christian growth. It's like the psalmist says in, in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my, my life and behold the beauty of the Lord. That's talking about desire. Desiring the Lord, that must be part of it. A second thing, fixing the mind requires concentration. Isaac Newton said, The key to understanding was, I keep it before me. And you and I know, the longer you look at something, especially things that are difficult, it starts to come together. But you got to concentrate for it to happen, right? Do we give that kind of concentration to God's word, to Christ himself? Another said this, if we are ever to learn Christian truth, a detached glance is never enough, but there must be a concentrated gaze in which he gird up the loins of the mind in a determined effort to see its meaning for us. A third thing is fixing your mind requires discipline like an athlete. In fact, if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, Verse 1 and 2, he's going to bring that up again because he puts athlete and fixing one's eyes on Christ in the same context where he says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have so 
great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? But then he says this, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a lot there to think about, to focus on, to fix your eyes on. Fixing your eyes also, your thoughts on Jesus requires time. Brethren, we give time to so many things. So many things require our time, but have you set aside blocks of time to think on Jesus? To think on him so that you may perceive correctly who he is and what he is and what follows as a consequence of those things. That is, so that you will remain faithful to him. So that you will not get spiritually sick and dull and useless. So that you will not fall by the wayside as you move through life. But you will persevere through the jostling tides of life without drifting away. Jesus is God. Jesus is God's full, final, and definitive revelation. Fix your thoughts on him. So we're asked, we're asked, the Hebrew audience was asked, we're asked today through Scripture, we're asked to consider, to fix our eyes, our mind attentively on actually, if you say, well, what do I fix my eyes upon? Well, the Scripture answers that too. Two designations about Christ. I'll look at them in a minute. But if I were to ask you, What's your homology? Now, of course, you may say to me, I don't even know what that means. Well, that's all right. Until I heard the word, I didn't know what it meant either. I'd be really asking you this. In a religious sense, what's your confession? That's, it comes from the Greek word. What's your acknowledgement? What do you acknowledge when it comes to your faith? And faith? It also means the word, the actually word means in, in our text, in verse number uh the last part of verse number one, it says our confession. You see that word, our confession? That word actually means to say the same thing as another. Or better, to agree with God on what he revealed about Jesus, his son. That's my acknowledgement. There's my confession right there. Now, what are the two designations that we are to focus in on concerning Jesus? Now, I've got a question for you. Who's the greatest New Testament apostle? Now, some may say Peter. Some may say John. But most people would say Paul, right? Paul, they would give the answer. But did you know a fact that is often overlooked? That Jesus is the greatest apostle? Did you know that? You didn't know that. But you do now. You know why? Because look at verse number 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling concerning Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So there's two things that we're to consider very seriously with our mind, give time to, give energy to. And that the first thing is that Jesus Christ is our apostle an apostle like prophet is someone who speaks to people to the people in behalf of God. The term apostle is really very rich in meaning. The basic meaning of the word means to send forth. One who is sent. But in biblical times, it was used in a very, a, a more technical sense to mean someone who is commissioned or dispatched by one 
who is in authority, like a king would dispatch an ambassador to another country to represent that country. Or an emperor would send someone out to represent their particular government. So this means that an apostle was invested with the full measure of authority by the one who sent him. Jesus said often to his disciples, those who receive you, receive me. Those who reject you, reject me. What were they rejecting? They were rejecting the authority that they were given by Christ. The author of Hebrews wants to highlight the authority of Christ, that Jesus is first and foremost the one who is sent. Jesus said, I speak nothing of my own authority. I speak only with the authority of the one who sent me. God, the Father, sent Jesus to provide for man's salvation. In fact, if you didn't notice, we read it in our passage this morning. In John 6, in verse 57, it says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. That Jesus was the sent one by the Father with full authority in heaven and in earth, as Matthew 28 proclaims to us. We're to think about that. This, of course, makes him greater than Moses. Because Moses had the authority of God, but not full authority. Not the authority that Christ had. A second thing to consider in our passage is that Jesus is not only the apostle, but he is the high priest of our confession. So an apostle is called and sent by God, invested with full authority of the Father. And then Jesus Christ, we're to consider that he is our high priest, the high priest of our confession. A priest, remember, an apostle is sent to the people in behalf of God. A priest speaks to God in behalf of the people. So Jesus, the high priest of Israel, of his people, all his people, and the high priest we know in Israel was called by God, was anointed by God, speaks to God for the people. In fact, in Scripture, it tells us that he prays for the people. Here is the believer advocate in heaven, representing man to God before his throne. As God's son, Christ functions as a reconciler, as a mediator before God and man. Jesus knows both God and man like no one else does. Of course, Moses knew, but not like Jesus knew. So he is our mediator. Moses being a mediator, but he is him being our greater mediator. And what else does the high priest do? He goes into the Holy of Holies, right? Once a year to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices on the mercy seat for himself and for the people so that their sins could be covered and forgiven. Jesus goes in once for all as a final sacrifices, and takes care of it completely. That's what he does. So he becomes the greater high priest. Moses not even being a high priest, making him greater than Moses. Now, that's how he starts out this passage. These are the things we are to begin to think about and consider for our own selves. And so he expands that a bit. And he goes in verse number two, and he gives us some of the similarities of Moses and Christ that were considered, and then the differences. We're going to highlight the differences more, but the similarities in verse two, it says, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. So here's the main ingredient, that Moses was faithful, so was Christ faithful. They were very similar in this respect, in our passage, Jesus and Moses are put side by side for the purpose of showing us that Jesus is far greater than Moses. Both were prophets. Both were God's apostles. Sent to declare the divine mind and will of God. Tells us in Acts that God 
sent Moses to Egypt. He commissioned them and sent them to go before Pharaoh. He was, in that respect, same kind of uh, word, sent one, an apostle, representing God with authority. Coming before the king of a nation, telling the king what to do. Because God's over the Pharaoh. He's over the king. He has authority over them, and Moses becomes the mediator between him and that king to tell that king what God's will is, and of course, God had his way. So both were faithful, carried out their work, and in this verse, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also in all his house. Both are faithful in their high and difficult offices. In fact, this comes from Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, where it says, Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. The Word of God proclaimed that, that Moses was appointed to deliver the Israelites from Egypt, to give them the law, to lead them to the promised land. And yet Jesus is greater in faithfulness than Moses because unlike Moses, he did not falter or waver even to his death on the cross. Often Moses was commonly placed in a higher rank than angels by the Jews. And that's one of the reasons why he brings this up again. Scripture already proved that Jesus is greater than angels. Now it must prove that he is greater than Moses, who was logically, for the Jews, greater than angels. And why does it say that? Well, if you take your Bible for a minute and turn to Numbers chapter 12, you'll see what it does say about Moses that makes him different than anyone else. In Numbers chapter 12, in verse number 6 through 8, It says, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? See, the people revered Moses to a level above angels. Why? Because God, in a sense, spoke face to face with him. He didn't speak in visions or dark sayings with him. He spoke directly with him. And so that, in the people's eyes, lifted Moses through the generations to a place that he ought not to have been. And that's what the people were having trouble with here. This is not uncommon in in many Old Testament-related religions. So to correct the error and challenge those who had already begun to waver, not only are there two designations of Christ given, but also the similarities between Moses and Christ and the differences between them, all demonstrating that Christ is superior over Moses. Now let's look at verse number 3 through 6. The difference between Moses and Christ that we're to fix our mind on. And the apostle shows us that Christ's superiority over Moses, or the author shows us Christ's superiority over Moses really in, in three ways. The first way is that Christ's glory is more superior than Moses because Christ is the builder of the house. Look at verse 3. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, just by just so much as a builder of the house has more glory than the house itself. Now, it seems like he's appealing by an illustration here that he's showing that Christ is the builder of the house. He's the one who designed the house. He's the one who erected the house. He's the one who's made the plans for the house. And believe me, we have seen many grand houses in our day. But it's really, and you say, wow, look at the magnificent structure there. 
to whatever building it is, but it's really not the glory of the building, the glory of the one who designed it, who put it all together in his mind and then built the thing and made it a reality. So the Bible is saying here, listen, he is superior than Moses because he is the builder of the house. And of course, in our text here, where it says uh, in verse number three, the house, really, that word there, that phrase there, means the church or the people of God are meant by the house of God. Without a builder, a house doesn't exist. And without occupants, a house is of no use. So see, Christ built the house, and Moses was only part of the house. Therefore, Christ had more glory than Moses, and therefore superior to him. A second thing, a second reason why Christ is more superior than Moses is found in verse number 5. It says, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Now, secondly, Christ's honor is more superior than Moses. Why? Because Christ is the owner of the house. Now, I want you to notice these passages of scriptures that Moses was a faithful servant. Notice in verse five in all his house. Moses was inside the house of God, faithfully serving God. But Christ, in verse number six, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. You see that? That means he is the owner of the house. He is the one who is in control of everything in the house. And not only that, Moses was a servant in the house, Jesus Christ is the Son in the house. And remember, the Son is the one who is the heir of all things. Remember, in the first chapter, first chapter of Hebrews, and the one who possesses all things. And we know Jesus is the one who created all things, designed all things, keeps all things together. So see, because of that, Jesus Christ has greater honor than Moses, making him superior to Moses. But there's something else in verse number five I don't want you to miss. The last part of the verse, it says this. Not only was a servant in the house for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. That's very interesting. This, this is very interesting scripture. That Moses was a faithful witness in and for God's house, because Moses wrote about Christ when he was writing in the Old Testament, in Genesis, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he was writing about Christ. When he wrote about the tabernacle, he was writing about Christ. When he gave us the law, he was writing about Christ. When he gave us all the laws there, he was writing about how God's people are different than all the other nations around us. Because God's in their midst. That's what makes us different. See, he was writing about Christ. That's what it means there, that God spoke through Moses and yet promised to send a prophet vastly greater than Moses. And even though Moses was responsible for the prophecy of the coming of a prophet like himself, like Acts tells us in Acts 7.37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This was taken from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Who wrote Deuteronomy? Moses wrote Deuteronomy, right? Where it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Who is he speaking about? Now, some people have said that this passage of Scripture is speaking about Muhammad. But we know from the New Testament that it is speaking about Christ. In fact, if you take your Bibles, look at the Gospel of John. 
where Jesus himself is speaking to the people. And he says in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, in verse 47, this is what Jesus says about Moses in verse 46 of John 5. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, if you receive Moses and accept him as the mediator of the Old Covenant, you must accept Jesus, who is the apostle and high priest and mediator of the New Covenant, the redemption in my blood, right? This forever eternal sacrifice that this high priest offered in behalf of believers that they may come to know him as their Lord and Savior. Moses was part of God's plan of deliverance and salvation, not just for the people of Israel. Moses would actually be a picture of the one who would come after him. And he would represent the greatest of all deliverers because the one who would come after him would be a spiritual deliverer, that God would provide an ideal ruler to fulfill his promise. And the man he would prepare would be an ideal redeemer. He would be able to accomplish what he said. Now, what's the significance of Moses? Well, Moses really actually was a type of Christ. Moses was pointing to the greater deliverer. God raised up Moses to be the deliverer and to set the people free from the agony of suffering and harsh slavery. But Moses would only be a foreshadow of the one who would be, the one who would be greater than himself, that he would set the people free from the burden, the guilt, and the agony of the sin, uh, the bondage of sin and condemnation, that God was preparing these people, the children of Israel, for the tremendous deliverance that was going to be provided when God sent his son into the world. Therefore, Moses is a type of Christ. Looking forward to what the Lord Jesus would do. You know what that means? That Christ owns the house. He's over it. And he is the son in it, heir of all things. He is the subject and object of prophecy And Moses was only a servant and a faithful witness in the house. Therefore, Christ is more honorable than Moses. He's obliterating these arguments. He's he's convincing these Jews that are, are, are maybe thinking about going back to Judaism, going back to the religious system. Why? Because of Moses being the prophet and it seems like moses was being pushed aside and this person christ was being exalted exactly and that's what moses was saying all along he was always his whole life and ministry pointed to christ that's why we need the old testament brethren you got to be in the old testament you got to know that old testament because that old testament combined with the new testament tells us the full picture of what God's been doing all these years. And what does it do? It bolsters our faith. It gives us strength to live. That's what it does. In fact, you're going to find out that's the conclusion he's coming to. But there's one other thing that shows that Christ is superior than Moses, and that's Christ's dignity is more superior than Moses. And I skipped this verse. Look at verse number 4 of Hebrews chapter 3. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is who? God. In other words, real simple, to the point, Christ is able to build the house because he's God. He's able to build it from the time that the Trinity met together in eternity past, before there was a heaven and earth, before any man lived on the face of this earth. Christ had planned it with the Father and the Spirit all along. He's been the architect and builder of our salvation, of the people of God from the beginning, right? 
Why? No one could do that unless they're God. Like I said, we can't even get it right from day to day, from generation to generation. We can't pass it down, but if you're God, you can keep it all together. You can keep it all moving. You can keep the ministries of Moses and what he represented at a time when Christ would come into the world at the perfect time, at due time, right? And come and be the high priest and die on the cross and rise from the dead and give us eternal salvation to all who believe and then our salvation in him will be and is secure because of who he is. So why are we to consider Jesus in this light? Why? I'll tell you why. So that you and I can remain diligent in our faith and persevere to the end. Yes, it's about focusing on Christ. So see, there's a second thing I want you to consider this morning. I want you to consider your own faithfulness and obedience to God. How are you doing? Look at verse number 6 of our passage in chapter 3 of Hebrews. It says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. We're part of God's house. If you know Christ, you're part of God's house. If people were to be faithful to Moses, are we to have a greater faith and faithfulness to our Lord who was faithful? I believe so. In our passage, it says this, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end he is admonishing his hearers to don't give in don't let someone convince you other than what the truth and the word of god says hold fast to your confidence be firm until the end be strong that's what he's telling them we 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 must not be timid in speaking what we believe to be true concerning jesus A Christian, in fact, it says here, if we hold fast to our confidence and boast of our hope, a Christian must make their boast. You know, it has to do with causing to boast here. The object of which one is boasting. Our boasting, though, Maybe in two categories. Our boasting may be subjective. Our boasting also may be objective, or they may be both, which they should be both. What do I mean by that? Now, if someone comes up to you and asks you, how do you know that you are a Christian? And you say to them, well, I feel it. Which many people answer that way. I know in my heart that I'm a believer. Now, that's a very subjective answer, right? It's very hard to prove that, very difficult uh, to prove that. But in a very real sense, our faith does have a subjective nature to it. It must be subjective, but our feelings must be constantly fed by the objective foundation which informs our boast in Christ. That's why we're fixed our mind on Christ, our attention on Christ. We're to get to know who he is and what he did and what it means for my everyday life. It's hard to hold fast to something subjective especially if your feelings are being compromised, which they are all the time, or that you're under the threat of being ostracized or in some kind of suffering, or you're just in a very downtime, in the valley time of your life, and you just don't feel anything. You feel numb. Do Christians ever feel that way? Sure you do. You know why? You're human. So see, if I feel like that, then I also will start feeling like this. I don't feel saved. I don't feel like I'm a believer. I feel like God actually has forsaken me because of the way I feel. But see, the the Bible is saying don't stay there. 
your subjective feelings must be informed by objective truth. See, it does it, the way I feel doesn't change the fact that Jesus is my apostle and my high priest and my redeemer and my savior and my intercessor and the one who's coming back to me and the one who's lavished his love upon me. It changes none of those. If I feel like dirt, it changes none of that. If I'm putting my head on a chopping block, it changes none of that. Do you understand what he's saying here? Don't let these things, the sufferings of life, bring you to the place where you forsake truth or some good silver-tongued preacher or speaker convince you that jesus is not who he is because they're able to move you and and get into your emotions and get into your your uh subconscious and bring you to the place where you start doubting and wondering oh man is this real i don't know if it's real i don't know what to feel anymore it's too much about what we feel. There must be that objective ground and basis on which our boast rests. You may ask, what do I mean? I mean a boast that embraces all that we have in Christ as something of which we love to speak as our highest and richest possession. All the forms of the object, the object's content should be our boast and our hope. See, when Christ becomes precious to us, when he becomes our treasure, when he becomes the highest in our thoughts, and we begin to meditate on Christ on a regular basis, it transforms you. It makes you bold. It gives you a boast that nothing else could. In fact, just by way of example, that Christ is the author of our salvation. It says that in chapter 2. That he'll bring many sons to glory. That Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. That Jesus is heir. We are about to inherit salvation as co-heirs. That Jesus Christ in chapter 2 is our expiation. Remember that one? Remember expiation is something done with a view to me, the believer, the expiation of my sin. In other words, my sin exits from me when I come to Christ. My sin is removed from me, and the punishment is removed from me and given to Jesus. So Jesus offers to God for us. He sends our sin to the cross. He sends his righteousness to us. By his incarnation, he joined us and made us his brothers. By his death and expiation, he frees us from the devil, from the might of death, from the fear of death. He brings the help we need in time of temptation. Christ, also the apostle and high priest, whom we confess, he fills us with the assurance and the boast of hope all about christ as spurgeon's quote this morning it's all about him he fills us with glory that awaits us at the end why is it that i can endure to the end if i had to endure in the christian life in the end and there was nothing there for me that's it a grave with a bunch of dirt what's the point that's not what the scriptures say i await glory I await the presence and the face of Christ. I await a kingdom that is indescribable. I await a resurrected body. I await being free from pain and tears and crying and death. That's what I await. That is my hope. That's why I can endure, endure to the end because this life is not the end. That's why. See, then I can go through a day and a week and a month and a year where my feelings are all, all over the place because the truth hadn't changed. And I'm so glad about that. I'm so glad the truth doesn't change. I am so glad Christ doesn't take left turns on us. We don't know where to go. We get lost. He doesn't do that. This is it. This is the way it is. And because it is that way, then 
you see it's these un it's these unchanging rock solid objective realities that enable us to hold fast to our confession which in turn informs our feelings and enables us to feel firmly confident and assured of the realities of our faith causing us not to waver causing us to be discerning when it comes to false doctrine causing us to stand firm when we don't feel like standing firm see instead it will keep us from the faithlessness which destroyed the israelites in the time of moses those who profess faith in christ will remain faithful And they will give evidence that they are members of Christ's house or household. True believers will continue boasting of the hope in Christ. They will continue boasting of redemption and the cross till the day of their end of their lives. The cross never becomes a past subject. It's always an ever-present subject. Give me an answer of the hope that lies within you. Of course, do it with reverence and fear. Do it with respect. But tell them, it's Christ who saved me. It's Christ who's my mediator. It's Christ who died in my place. It's Christ who took my condemnation. It is Christ who paid for my sins fully and offered me forgiveness. It is Christ who takes me to heaven and comes to get me. It's all about Jesus Christ. And don't ever forget it. That is the doctrine that is the most attacked by demons. So the Holy Spirit asks you this morning, are you persevering? Do you even know you're a Christian today? Or are you, are the jostling tides of life causing you to drift away? get cold to get numb is christ as dear to you today as he was the first day you met him is he as sweet to you today as the day you professed him in your new christian faith are you holding on to your courage firm in your confession Firm in your confession because you do know what you believe. In fact, you do know what you believe so much, you're willing to die for it. You're willing to give your life up for this truth. Are you proud of the gospel? Proud enough to confess it to one who you don't think is going to believe it? Are you proud enough of the gospel to give it to someone who you, who's in trouble, their life is erect, and you give them all other solutions except the gospel? Are you proud of the gospel? Are you proud of the power of the gospel that can rescue someone from the bondage of their sin? So was there a time in your life perhaps with the fresh glow and new faith when you were proud and courageous for christ but now with the passing of time your proper pride your boast your courage are gone where are you and believe me brethren i've been through all those phases have you have you been through those phases i've been I've come to the place where I, sometimes I just want to throw the towel in. Maybe not because of I don't believe what I believe. It's just that, you know, you just get wrapped up in the entanglement of life. And the, your own unfaithfulness in some areas, your own difficulty in overcoming a particular sin, some family member or some friend that just don't want to have it to do anything with Christ that one time they did. You're witnessing and no one's listening to you. You're reading the word of God and it just seems like you're not moving anywhere. See, don't you feel like that sometimes? I feel like that a lot of times. 
But I tell you what, you keep coming back to the Word of God, you keep coming back to Christ, and Christ gives you the confidence to know this, that if there is any truth, this is the truth. And you compare him with any religious system, and what do you find? You find that 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 religious system is just nothing but a bunch of things you have to do to get saved. When you come to Christ, you realize it's grace. It's free. By faith, Christ has done it all. So see, that's why you and I need to focus on and hold on to Christ, our great, superior apostle and high priest. That's our calling, and when you do, you will persevere. You will. That's what he's telling these Hebrew Christians, that, and we're not in their place right now. They were really under the pressure and the gun. We're free. We're, we're, we're free, but we're not free from the allurement of sin. We're not free from the crushing philosophies of the world. And we're not free from demons who are commissioned by Satan to trample and trample your faith and get you to deny Christ. Maybe not by your profession, but by your life. I'll just be a little quiet Christian. I'm not going to bother anybody. Believe me, if this burns in your bones, you have to say it to somebody, right? You have to live it. You know there's no other way. Christ is the answer not only to eternal salvation, but to everyday living. And all God's people said, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you deemed in your wisdom to lay it out for us just the way it is. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us people who are obedient to it, who are faithful to it, who have our objective faith so informed by truth that it affects even our feelings, our emotions. It affects our plans and our goals. It affects how we live every day of our life. It affects what we say, how we say it. It affects the end of the story. Oh, Lord, thank you. Help us to be those people who persevere to the end because we know what we believe. And I thank you and I pray it in Christ Jesus. Amen.